Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we are in the very last sermon in a fall series on questions that were brought to Jesus. Uh, when our kids were younger, I don't know if this happened to you, but uh, we ended up with a good idea that went bad. Um, we created what I have called ever since the day we, we came up with this idea, Easter Money Monsters. Not bunny, money as in cash. Um, when our kids got to be about seven, eight, they were getting a little bit older. The whole Easter egg hunt was not quite as exciting. You know, you get those eggs, plastic eggs that break apart, and you put the candy in them, right? Oh, I started putting in like a dollar bill here or there, thinking, well, you know, the older ones, they need a little, you know, money to go to the store or whatever. And so for the first year or two when that happened, and we had all the cousins at our house on Easter, so we're talking eventually there were like nine or ten kids running around our, our yard looking for Easter eggs, and uh, they would find a dollar, and that would, oh my gosh, that would be so exciting for a seven-year-old to find a dollar. But then the seven-year-olds eventually became, you know, 10-year-olds, and a dollar was really not all that exciting anymore. And so then we had to, like, go to $5, and you would see kids in the yard, you know, shaking these eggs to, and if they heard a rattle and it was candy, they just threw it on the ground and, and went for the, for the next egg. And, and, and when my kids came home from college, they, on spring break, they would say, we're having an Easter egg hunt, right? And, it, and it's up to 20 bucks now, right? And, and we created these money-hungry, uh, grabbing, terrible Easter monsters. <laughs> I don't know where they got that. I, I don't understand where my children got this selfishness and, and this, this attitude of what's in it for me. They couldn't have possibly gotten that riding around in the car with me when someone would butt in front of me who had no right to be there or... Uh, seen me lately. Now McDonald's has come up with this disastrous idea of two lines in the drive-through and watching cars that you know are going to just rub fenders to make sure I get in front of the other person. I'm sure they never learned any of that from me. <laughs> the questions that we've been examining over the fall have been questions that people bring to Jesus. Most of whom are people that are outside of the kingdom of God. Most of whom are people who aren't quite sure whether or not they buy the whole Messiah thing yet. Son of God, uh, they're, not, they're not quite sure, they're a bit skeptical, and so they come kind of testing the waters and wanting some answers. This morning, we're going to look at a question that is raised by one disciple in particular, but I think that he's representative of what all the other disciples have on their mind, and the question is fundamentally, what's in it for me? Now, let me give you a bit of a context before we get into Matthew 20. In Matthew 19, Jesus has been doing some teaching on the kingdom of God, and he's done so not only by, by what he has said, but by what he has done. For example, about halfway through chapter 19, a bunch of people bring little children to Jesus. And the disciples look over there and they go, kind of like adults would when there's an adult meeting going on, and a very important adult here in the middle, you know, that's leading a conversation. They say to the parents and they say to the kids, now get over there and be quiet. Don't bother the master. Don't bother Jesus. He doesn't have time for you. And Jesus turns and he rebukes the disciples. He says, you guys have it all wrong. Get out of the way. Let these kids come over here because this childlike faith, this is what the kingdom of God is all about. A little while later, a very prestigious young man comes to Jesus, a man of high standing in the community. And he begins to engage Jesus with a question that we considered a few weeks ago, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the disciples are kind of standing back and ushering this guy in saying, hey, here's, here's somebody, Jesus, you really need to spend your time with. And Jesus engages this man in a conversation, and the net result is 
You're not anywhere near the kingdom of God because you won't let go of the idols in your life. You do not have a childlike faith. You do not have a trust in God that would allow you to recklessly abandon all the things that the world says offer you security and come and follow me. The kingdom of God couldn't be further away. And the disciples are astounded. They're shocked. And they say, Jesus, we don't get it. If someone who's been seemingly so blessed by God with all these possessions can't get into heaven, who can? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if any of you have left families or, or possessions for the sake of the kingdom of God, you'll be cared for. And so Peter, speaking right up, as Peter often does, and voicing what everybody else is thinking, but by what nobody's willing to say, he says, Jesus, hang on just a second. <laughs> Let, let's be clear, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What is, what's there for us? What do we get? What's in it for me? Peter speaks the question that a lot of us want to know. We've heard about sacrifice. We, we've heard about the cost of following Jesus. Is there actually a payoff at the end of this deal? And interestingly enough, before we get to the actual verses we're going to read in, in just a minute, Jesus says to Peter, there will be a reward. You will be eternally blessed for following me, but you better check your heart. You better look at your motives. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, Jesus instructs Peter to check his motives. He calls us to look at our hearts this morning through the following parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go in the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went going out again, excuse me, so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, and beginning with the last, up to the first. So we're going to pay the guys who came in and worked for about an hour first, all the way to the very end where we'll pay the guys who have been here all day. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive, um, excuse me, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now those who were hired at first, when they came, they thought they received more, but each of them also received it in areas. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give. To this last worker, as I give to you, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word, to your truth. Not to man's opinions or man's ideas. We hear those on a regular basis. Uh, they are of some value from time to time, but Lord, most certainly we need to hear and know your eternal truth. This is not someone's opinion. This is not someone's idea. This is your spoken 
and written holy and perfect word. It has no mistakes. It does not come up short in any area. It speaks directly to your truth. And it tells us the way of life. Father, some of us have a hard time believing that. Some of us uh, feel it's a bit presumptuous to assume that that the Bible contains the, the perfect word of God. Father, others of us maybe are skeptical because our lives don't seem to match up with what we've read. Uh, others of us, Lord, are, are just simply uh, ignorant. We haven't had a chance to ever read a Bible. No one's ever really walked us through it. We've never been taught these things. And Father, some of us misread and, and therefore are presumptuous about our own goodness, and we minimize your grace. And so, Father, there isn't a person in this room, starting with the one standing here to do the teaching, to every person gathered that doesn't need to hear your word. So Lord, forgive me for my sin. I pray that I would not stand in the way of anyone hearing your word of life. Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. Sorry, my, uh, I took a month off from coaching hockey as we were involved in this project, and I got back Friday night. We had our first game, and my voice isn't in shape yet for uh, yelling at hockey players in a cold hockey rink, so my voice is a little scratchy this morning. But we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, work through this passage. What's in it for me? Jesus answers the question by telling a parable. And I want to uh, offer you three observations out of this text this morning. The first is I want to look at the landowner and see what we can learn uh, from him, because this, this master of this house is, is quite a unique individual. Uh, secondly, we want to uh, consider the reaction that uh, occurs between the laborers as they are paid. Uh, and then thirdly, I want to see the warning that the, the master offers to those who would work in his vineyard as each of us kind of considers the question, what's in it for me? Well, let's begin with the landowner. The first thing about this landowner is that he's a very knowledgeable uh, farmer. He's in the farming business, clearly. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And then he talks about the, the uh, agreement we'll come back to in just a minute. But this is a man who is up early in the morning. This is a man who is all about making sure he does the very best job in growing his grapes. He's uh, wanting to make sure that the timing is exactly right when he comes to the harvest. And so it's, the moment has come. It's time for the, the grapes to be harvested. And so he, he is immediately on top of things and he goes to get his labors. Now, um, I've, been, I've been learning a little bit about wine the last few years. I've got a buddy who has a French wine club, and I've, I've tried to learn a few things. Uh, I don't know that much about it, but I have learned that timing's kind of everything. Uh, that you can, even in a, in a bad year when it's maybe a little bit too hot, if you, if you time it exactly right, if you carefully observe and watch the grapes, you could come out, you know, doing pretty well. So I went to this, uh, this little website that I look at every once in a while, and they were talking about the 2006 Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignons, which I know is of great interest to all of you, so I thought I would share this with you this morning. Um, they said that the growing season started and finished on cooling notes, but in between, the growers had to deal with multiple heat spikes that would ultimately separate the men from the boys. Uh, the wine advocate identified, that's the name of this, this webpage, the wine advocate identified a number of superb bargains, many of which were estate-grown Cabernets, and here's the catch, where proprietors opted to leave profits on the ground, hand-plucking blistered berries, effectively managing tannins in the vine months before the October harvest. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I'm sure there are a lot of people in this room who know more about wine than me. But I think what it means is those guys watched everything very carefully and they picked their moment when it was right. 
And that's what helped them end up, ended up having a good wine in an off year. Get that image in your mind. This is a guy who knows his business. This is a guy who's paying very careful attention. He's up before the sun. He goes out and he picks his staff at the very break of day, and he leaves uh, no question about the pay. He, he organizes these guys from the very uh, beginning moment. And we see that he says uh, in verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he's smart enough to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know up front what you're going to earn. He's a very knowledgeable man, but he's also extraordinarily generous. We actually worked through this passage with my Wednesday morning Bible study guys, and we all agreed that this isn't necessarily a business model that you want to follow for financial success. Because this, this landowner goes into town and he finds the place where the common day laborers are assembled. He finds the men who don't have a regular job. They don't have uh, a craft or a skill. They're not highly trained in any particular area. They're kind of folks that, that gather in this place hoping that somebody will come by and say, hey, I need my, my leaves raked today. Uh, or I need somebody to help me uh, do some work around the yard. These are folks that maybe make somewhere around $10 an hour. Uh, they're, they're the bottom rung of the labor force. And that's where this, this man goes to pick those who will work in his vineyard. And he doesn't pick them because they're ultimately skilled. He doesn't pick them because they have their union ID card. But he pays them a union wage. I think a union wage today in St. Louis, if you're a highly skilled carpenter or a pipe fitter, that sort of thing, is somewhere around $80 an hour. Now, that might not be right, but just for the sake of argument, that's a common number I'm going to use. When Jesus says that this man paid them a denarius a day, that's what a skilled laborer would earn. A skilled laborer would earn $80 an hour, and they were going to work 12 hours. They work from 6 in the morning until 6 at night. So that's $960 when normally you would pay a common laborer $120. This landowner is extraordinarily generous. He's offering them basically three months' pay for one day of work. But not only is he knowledgeable about what he needs, not only is he generous with the resources that belong to him, but he is also incredibly focused. If you look at verses 3 through 7, it says he goes back out about the third hour, which is 9 in the morning. He sees some folks in the marketplace. He says, hey, you guys go work too, and, and don't worry, I'll make it right with you. I'll pay you what, what I should. He goes back out at noon, which is the sixth hour, 3 in the afternoon. And then again at 5 in the afternoon, an hour before quitting time, he gathers some folks and says, you go work in my, in my vineyard too. This guy's focused. He knows what he's about. He understands what needs to happen. But he is also incredibly liberal with the resources God has given him. When evening came, the owner said, of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, and beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Remember that he, when he recruited folks who came after six in the morning, the guys that he talked to at 6 in the morning, he agreed on what we were going to earn. We're going to earn a denarius. And these guys had to think Christmas morning had come. <laughs> we hadn't heard any Christmas carols yet, but we, this guy's going to pay us basically what we could earn in our own abilities over three months. He's going to pay us that today. Where do I sign? Get me there. I'm ready to go. 
But that's the only group of people with whom he negotiated. Everybody else, he said, look, I'm in a hurry. We got to get this done. Time is is of the essence. I'll make it right. Just go and work. Perhaps they had heard what everybody else was going to earn. Perhaps they thought it would be some amount of that, or perhaps they didn't know at all, but because they wanted to eat that night, because they wanted to put food on the table for their family, they went to the vineyard and they went to work. And yet what was right in the eyes of the owner was generosity. What was right in his eyes for all of his workers, whether they had worked an hour or whether they had worked 12, was to give them far beyond what they could have possibly earned. About 20 years ago, at least, I was sitting in a diner in Pennsylvania at about one o'clock in the morning with a couple of my buddies, and we were doing a youth conference at a, at a college outside of Philadelphia. Uh, and we had been there long enough in this little town to find out where the all-night diner was. And, and being a big fan of Spencer's here in Kirkwood and loving the, the gourmet food there, I, uh, I enjoy finding good diners around the country. And so we, we went into this diner and we ordered breakfast, which is, you know, kind of 1 o'clock in the morning. Every once in a while, you just got to have a good stack of pancakes and egg and bacon, right? You've maybe had that experience before. And uh, the server we had was a woman who was a, a middle-aged gal, I would say maybe, maybe about 40, um, and she was one of the worst servers I've ever had in my life. I, she got nothing right. And there were three of us. I mean, this was not tough. I'll have orange juice. I'll have milk. I'll have chocolate milk. Okay, you wanted the chocolate milk? No, that was him. Okay, you wanted the No, that goes to you. Were the, I mean, it was like that the whole night. It was just absolutely terrible. But she was a very, very nice person. You could tell that she'd had a hard life. She talked a little bit about her kids and how she was trying to make ends meet. And so we left. We left her $100 tip. And you, uh, we, we were barely out into the parking lot and she came running out. She was like, I think you've made a terrible mistake. You know, you've, you left me way too much. We said, look, you're the, you're the greatest server any of us have ever had in our lives. We have never had service like this before. <laughs> and we just, we just wanted to give that to you. And the tears just started coming down her eyes. She couldn't believe that, that somebody would pay her far more than she would ever earn. And yet, there's a generous spirit that should be born in the heart of disciples that reflect the heart of their father. And what Jesus is describing here is not a master of a house who owns a vineyard. The master of the house in the story is God. The vineyard is his kingdom. Jesus is very clear. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. He's speaking about the, the description of God building his kingdom in order that our faith would increase. Because this God who has called us to be his sons and his daughters through the Lord Jesus is knowledgeable. He knows what he's doing. He hasn't made a mistake. How many of you sometimes have thought like I have, God picked me. I'm not sure why. I think that was, I think there was a smudge on the page and he got the wrong name. I probably shouldn't be in. No, God knows exactly what he's doing, but he's also generous. It's not about how much I can do to earn his love. It's about how freely he gives of it. And he's focused He has laser intention on salvation, on his plan to grow his kingdom. And so he liberally spends all of his resources to that end. This is a very unique landowner. And Jesus is describing the one who is the Lord and the ruler of all that is. But then there's a reaction to this landowner. Because so far, that, that looks pretty good. Uh, and, until we get into this engagement between those who have been working all day and the one who is, who is offering the salary. So in verses 10 through 12, we see that those who were hired first came. They thought they would receive more. 
So they see these guys that live an hour going to Daenerys and go, ooh, they're getting a Daenerys. We, that's about, wow, that's, we're going to get about a year and a half's worth of salary instead of three months' worth of salary. They start doing the math, and their assumption is that they've earned that. Their assumption is that that is now their due. But each of them also received a denarius. So how do they react? Receiving this, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last work only one hour. You've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. This is a very telling reaction. It speaks very clearly as to what is in the motive of their hearts, and it, and it should be a window into the, the motives of our hearts and souls this morning as well. There is a presumptuous attitude based on a very, very short memory. Their memory is not even uh, effective enough for 12 hours. They dis- assume that they deserve much more than those who have worked only an hour or perhaps even a few months, a uh, few moments less. But they forget the generous contract that they gladly signed earlier that morning. That conversation is, is so distant from their mind, they can't even recall the fact that 12 short hours ago, they were dancing for joy because they were going to make three months worth of salary in one day. And they probably, as they're walking to the vineyard going, we, we better do this now because there's no way this guy's going to be in business next year. <laughs> if he pays us like this, that he's, he's done for. Is this not the greatest thing that's happened to us? And now 12 hours later, they've got their arms folded in disgust. How dare you insult us? By paying these the same as you paid us. Very telling reaction to their hearts. Their claim of inequity is an uh, overestimating their own work while ignoring the master's kindness. Notice that their focus is on the fact that this is unfair. This is not right. You are treating us in an evil manner. But they are focused this way. They feel that this is unfair because their focus is on themselves. Their focus is on others and how long they worked or how short they worked and not on the character of the master. Any parent in this room uh, that has multiple children who are at least all older than five have had this experience. You sit down maybe on a Saturday morning. And you're going to go through the chores for the day, right? And everybody's got a few little things that they have to do to help keep up the household. And maybe so-and-so is going to do the vacuuming. And so-and-so is going to do a little bit of dusting. And so-and-so is going to do a little bit of laundry. And as soon as you give the first one the assignment, okay, now you're going to vacuum. And then when you're done with the vacuum, I want you to empty all the trash cans. And when you're done with that, you're good for the day. And, and if that seems off to that child, that child's going to say, wait a minute. What about in our case? What about those two? What do they have to do? I want to make sure before we get any further down the road that the distribution of labor in this household is exactly as it should be. Now, I would argue that they don't care a whit about whether the labor is is distributed fairly as much as they want to make sure it's good for them. They want to make sure that they're not being cheated. And children question the character of their parents all the time. Mom, Dad, I'm sorry, I think you got this one wrong. She needs to vacuum this week. I vacuumed last week. I'll make sure that the playing field is even. And about the time that that one is negotiating, what's going on over here? Hold on just a second. That's not fair. (laughs) What are you talking about? I vacuumed three weeks in a row. Remember when you were at camp and I had to do all that extra work? And it's all about me. It's all about what I get. This is a telling reaction 
because it speaks to the core of the heart of those who have been exposed to the master. Those who have, have experienced and are experiencing his kindness and his generosity and his grace. And somehow they cannot connect the dots and they lose, they've lost their focus on, on his character. And they now feel that they've been mistreated. And what Jesus is doing here is describing each one of us if we lose sight of his grace. Remember, this is about the kingdom of God. This is not about those who are outside the kingdom of God. This is about the building of the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's answering Peter's question, what's in it for me? And Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, there is something coming, but you might want to look at your own heart. And he exposes our hearts for what they are in this reaction. And then he offers what I would consider a very kind, but a very stern warning. Look at verses 13 through 16. But he replied to one of them. So maybe one of the guys stood up and said, hey, we've been talking and we got a question about this whole pay thing. We think he maybe kind of did us wrong here. So he replies to one of them, probably the ringleader, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. If I choose to give to this last worker as I give you, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. I want you to see this word friend in the very top sentence. I probably should have underlined it just to call it out a little bit. In Matthew's gospel, there are only two other places where this word is used. The first is in Matthew 22, two chapters later, where Jesus is telling a story about the kingdom of heaven, and he talks about a man who comes into a wedding banquet. And he is dressed poorly. He is not dressed in wedding garments. And he is cast out of the wedding. The reason he is cast out is because the, the garments were offered to him when he came to the front door. In Jesus' day, the, the, the father of the, of the wedding party offered the garments to wear. You think weddings are expensive today. Be glad that you didn't live in Jesus' day. You had to buy everybody a new suit. And the guy walked in and saw his brand new suit of clothes and said, I don't need that. I, it was, I, I don't like his taste in clothes. It was an incredible insult to the host of the wedding. And the ho- wedding host comes and he sees this one dressed inappropriately. And he says to him, friend, how did you get in here dressed so inappropriately? The other time this word is used in Matthew's gospel is in Matthew 26. And one of, Judas's, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, approaches Jesus at night in the Garden of Gethsemane with a band of soldiers behind him. And Jesus says, friend, what you've come to do, do quickly. This is not a compliment. This is a warning. And it's kind of like when your children cross the line, or as a child, you've crossed the line, you've had this experience, and dad kind of does this. Son, daughter, you might want to rethink that position. They're calling you by a term of endearment, but they're warning you of a brewing storm. (laughs) And in, these, in this simple word, Jesus says God wants to make this abundantly clear. If you want to talk about my character, let's do so. If you want to talk about whether or not I'm fair, I'm happy to engage in that conversation with you. I have done you no wrong. I gave you what I offered to give you, and I've paid you far beyond your ability and far beyond your talents, far beyond anything you deserve. I have given you out of the generosity of my heart. I am not one who takes. I am one who gives. And my choice with my wealth is to be wildly generous. Now, let's talk about your heart. You gladly received my offer. 
you willingly and joyfully signed that contract to earn more money than you could possibly imagine earning, and now you accuse me of evil. Are you really concerned with what's right, or are you concerned with what you want? You accept my generosity, and now you demand more. I care for many. You care only for yourself. And as we look at this passage, we see a master who, when he has been incredibly generous and then unbelievably insulted, has the patience and the kindness and the fortitude to explain the truth to those who feel they've been put upon. I want to go back to my Easter egg uh, crazies for a while because you, you, for a minute you look out in the yard and, and, and you see, you know, 12-year-olds mowing down 6-year-olds and you, and you see kids grabbing eggs and kind of tussling over them and you see this battle and you go, oh my goodness, what, a, what have I created? And it's as if the master stands back and, and he goes, is this where, where, my, where my grace is headed? Is, is this the nut, net result of my kindness? Is this the end result of my generosity. And friends, God is a God who is generous. But I would, I would argue that there are, there are many moments, not where he is frustrated as if we're outside of his power or outside of his control. We are not. We are under his lordship. But I dare say there are moments when God says, really, kids? You've received the gift of my son on the cross for your sins, and this is your reaction? Your reaction is to make it all about you? Your reaction is, is to say, what's in it? For me, what's in it for you is glory and heaven for all of eternity. And what's in it for you now is to come and to work in the vineyard and to, and to roll up your sleeves and join me and to be part of my kingdom building, not to look around and make sure you get what you want. How do we apply this warning this morning at Green Tree Community Church? What's in this story for us? As I mentioned, we are not only called to salvation, but we're called to work in the vineyard. We're called to be part of building the kingdom of God. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but when you go to your office this week, when you go to school this week, when we celebrate Thanksgiving with extended family members this week, wherever we find ourselves, we are kingdom builders. We have received kingdom, yes, but we are also to pass that on to others. We are called to toil and to carry the burden and to give so that others know Jesus. Give of our time, give of our words, give of our communication, give of our resources, give of our lives. Enjoying God and working for his vineyard. We do not have, we should not have enough energy to stop and think about what's in it for us. We should be so spent on sharing the grace of God with others. We need to remember that we've been called in spite of our standing, not because of our ability. This is generosity reflected in the way in which I live. Do I understand that I've received a phenomenally lopsided contract and therefore reflect the generous heart of my masters? My master, do I have a joy in serving others? Um, like, like probably a lot of you, I voted a couple Tuesdays ago, and I'm going through the line, and when I got up to the table, I'm doing my driver's license and ID, and the guy had a problem with it, and he couldn't quite get it right, and he finally got it figured out, and, and, and after about, I don't know, not very long, maybe even a minute, you know, he goes, okay, I got it straight in hands back. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry to make you wait. I'm so sorry for the problem. And I said, you know, it's all right. I, I, the other two times I voted today, it wasn't a problem, so it's okay. It's all going <laughs> to come out in the wash. 
And he, he looked at me and he got, he, I mean, I, I thought I was going to give him a heart attack. And I'm like, I, I'm just kidding. It, you know, it's, it's, I'm just funning with you. And he's checking the records and making sure, you know. <laughs> I'm like, let's have a little fun. <laughs> Friends, you ought to be able to recognize Christians by the fact that they realize how incredibly fortunate they are to stand in the grace of God. They're in a demanding bone in their bodies because they just are so dumbfounded by the fact that God loves them the way he has loved them in Christ. And remember that we're called to the community of the undeserving, which is kind of saying the same thing three ways. There is no room for a demanding, self-centered attitude in your heart or in my heart. What's in it for us? Heaven someday. But what's in it right now is the opportunity to join our gracious master in his work of building his kingdom. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that Jesus reflects the, the truth of our master in this story. Lord, by looking at us sometimes, I'll say by looking at me sometimes, the world would have no idea that God is gracious and that God is kind and that he is forgiving and that he is so focused on, on salvation and compassion. So, Father, I thank you for this story and I thank you for the reaction of the workers because that's my reaction a lot of times. Somehow I let a demanding spirit grow and live in my heart. Father, forgive me. Doesn't look a thing like Jesus. There's no kingdom building involved. I thank you for the warning. You kind of look over your glasses and say, son, daughter, you might want to rethink this. Father, let us focus on the grace of Jesus that has captured our souls. And may that motivate us to gladly and joyfully work in your vineyard wherever and however you call us for your glory and that others may know the beauty of the grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.